Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that I broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge sovereignty has never been ceded, treaties yet to be signed. I pay respect to elders past and present and acknowledge the ongoing violence of the colonial project. It always was and it always will be. Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'm so thrilled to have lawyer, writer, artist Amani Hayder joining me to speak about her memoir, The Mother Wound. This book traces the legacy of her mother, her grandmother, and in many ways, women in general that have been victims of violence, both through war and through domestic abuse. It's a story of grief, loss and strength, of a pursuit of justice, of family, of healing and of art. And I know that this is one of those books that will stay with me for a very long time. Later in the show, I'll be playing a story from All the Best, Radio Doco Show, This one is all about street performance. I hope you can stay with me. I hope you can keep it locked. Just want to give a heads up before we jump into this interview that uh, it will contain discussion of domestic abuse. And if you or someone you know needs assistance or needs to talk to somebody, there are support services available, uh, including 1-800-RESPECT, Safe Steps and Beyond Blue. And I'll make sure to pop them um, up on the website um, with this interview after the show. The Mother Wound is a memoir by artist, writer and lawyer Amani Haider. It traces the legacy of her mother, her grandmother and of women that survive violence. It spans family, community, institutional shortcomings, a pursuit of justice and a personal journey of healing, recovery and survival, of vulnerability, anger, strength and of reclaiming truth through writing and art. Amani Haydar joins me on the line now. Amani, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much, Beth, um, and thank you for that really generous introduction to my book. Uh, it is uh, my absolute pleasure. I think that this this book is, uh, I was saying to you off air, I think it's one that is going to stay with me for a very long time. It's it's quite, it's it's intense, it's heartbreaking, but it is, there's just, it's brilliantly written and I'm so thrilled to be able to have this time with you. Amani, you know, this story, it's a deeply personal one, but I suppose in many ways, like you allude to, it kind of highlights um, violence both through war and through domestic abuse. You know, it has long-lasting effects and it affects people um, throughout their lives in many different ways. In your book, you speak about art as a way to process, as catharsis, both through your visual art practice and your writing. But I'm interested for you, what was the main catalyst for wanting to document and share uh, your story through memoir? Yeah, so after losing my mum to domestic violence in 2015 and experiencing the trauma and upheaval that that created for myself, Um, for my family and the people who loved and knew my mum, I felt incredibly disappointed and silenced 
because of the uh, overwhelming legal procedures that followed, the things that happened at my father's trial, and um, the, the way that society in general tends to turn away from or withdraw compassion from victims of violence. And um, because we, we witnessed victim blaming, we witnessed our story being the subject of media headlines, and we went through the trial process feeling that our agency and our sense of control had been taken from us. Um, I felt that my sisters and I, and, uh, and, and like I said, everyone who loved and knew mum, deserved to have the parts of her life that were successes, that were beautiful, um, or that were triumphs in the face of a lot of barriers, uh, heard and celebrated. So part of me initially wanted to shine a light on um, the nuance and complexity of our experience that had been erased through the legal process and in the media. Mm-hmm. I wanted to... Um, demonstrate that my mum had agency, that she did these amazing things with her life. And I wanted to draw the link between um, some of the broader issues that affect victims of violence. And for me, in my context, that, that includes everything from um, systemic barriers to racism uh, to not feeling empowered within systems and not feeling empowered to speak publicly. So art and writing became a tool in which I could reclaim my narrative mm-hmm. and engage with the public on my own terms, regain some of my agency and express some of the grief and uh, pain that came with losing my mum so violently and losing my grandmother before that um, also violently in war. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about your grandmother and your mother, you know, two very central, I want to say characters in this story, just because I feel like I've got a good sense of them just through reading your words, you know, both who have had a profound impact on your life. Can you tell me a bit about them both and what it was like growing up, your relations with both of these women? Yeah, so I was born in Australia, so I got to know my grandmother who lived in Lebanon uh, very briefly through um, trips and visits um, when when I visited Lebanon. So um, in 2006, when I was 17, I was there. I lived in her house. I watched her do all these domestic um, chores. I watched her sew and um, had these beautiful conversations with her where I felt that I was really connecting to someone who was important to me and who really loved me in, a, in an unconditional sense, which I think when we're growing up, we really crave and look for that. And that really helped me as well um, connect with uh, my heritage. It was it was such a valuable experience. And then when I came back to Australia a few months later, uh, war broke out in the south of Lebanon and my grandmother was killed in an Israeli drone strike. Um, and that incident was uh, investigated uh, by Human Rights Watch. It was reported internationally. It had the markers of a potential war crime. And then there was no sense of closure or justice flowing from that afterwards. So as a young person, feeling that someone had been taken away from you in such a cruel and violent way and not really finding uh, spaces or safe people to talk to Mm -hmm. about that experience was really, um, I I think it created, it really exacerbated the trauma of that incident. And, um, you know, my grandmother lived through uh, occupation, she raised nine children and I wanted her story to be known and for the story of the people who died in the same incident to also, um, you know, be documented for people Mm -hmm. to be aware of. Um, And like 
my mum. I felt that um, the legal process doesn't really give space to how complicated people's lives are. It didn't really uh, shine a light on the, the way that she experienced emotional and psychological abuse throughout her relationship before the homicide because the law does tend to look at individual incidents rather than patterns of behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be... It doesn't really uh, bring to the surface all of those uh, more nuanced experiences. So it was important for me to map those out and um, identify the red flags and revisit moments in my childhood where um, things weren't quite right and really make sense of that. Yeah, I think that's something that really stood out to me um, about writing about your childhood and kind of growing up and I suppose the relationship between your mother and your father and from a very young age it seemed that you had this real sense that they weren't um, compatible. You said that they were incompatible and, you know, in many ways it feels like a very astute response to kind of understanding the different ways that I suppose violence can play out in a home. Um, you know, I know it's incredibly common for victim survivors of abuse to not know or understand it in those words until many years later. Can you tell me a bit about, I suppose, that belief that your parents were incompatible and perhaps how that changed over time? Yeah, so I I didn't recognise the power dynamic within my parents' relationship as abuse when I was young because I simply didn't have that language. I didn't feel um, empowered to recognise things like red flags and coercive control and all the language that I have now um, I've I've developed more recently and later in life. So it was more of a matter of looking at their relationship and thinking they're unhappy, they're incompatible, there was a significant age gap, Uh, my mum had different interests, a different um, personality and a different... um, approach to life to my dad and I just thought well they're not they don't they're a bad fit they don't fit in each other's lives but then as I became uh, more aware and um, you know got married and had a relationship of my own I started to draw some comparisons and even still I didn't think of my dad as a threat and I don't think children grow up looking at their parents um, as as being capable of this sort of violence. And this is a level of violence that I never imagined my dad being capable of. And a lot of survivors will say that they hadn't imagined um, that someone could be capable of causing the death of another person in that way. And yet it happens. And it happens um, often without the really obvious markers that we would expect. And because of um, the way that popular culture and TV shows portray crime, we often have a very sensationalised view of what happens in the lead-up to a homicide, when in fact, when it occurs in the context of DV, there may have been no previous incidents of physical violence or serious physical violence. There may have been no prior reports to police. And understanding that that complex, um, that complexity and how insidious abuse can be is, is really key to uh, believing and supporting women better when they're escaping violence and taking their concerns seriously and providing them with adequate safety planning um, and measures such as that. So um, it was really hard to process that my dad and someone who I had trusted and been raised by um, was capable of that. But once I'd gone back and thought about the things my mum had said and thought about the red flags that I'd witnessed but not really 
understood in in the correct way, um, it, it all made sense. And I think that's something that I have in common with a lot of other people in similar situations. Mm, absolutely. I think it's a very common experience for victim survivors to, as you said, kind of gain that language and understanding um, with, I suppose, with retrospect and being able to learn a little bit more about abuse and what it can look like and that, um, of course, it, it can result in, in deaths and it does um, way too commonly. But, it, yeah, it's all of these different forms of violence that, um, I suppose, make up what domestic abuse is and, and can look like. Um, Amani, you know, the time when, you know, you, you, you talk about it when everything happened, you were five months pregnant, um, you know, you find out this incredibly distressing news or you find kind of pieces of it out and you know that something's wrong and, you know, in many ways um, it feels like in those kind of immediate moments after the the murder took place that you couldn't really um, heal because you kind of almost became this like immediate carer for your, for your sisters, um, you've also got your baby to think about. Can you speak to, I suppose, your role as an older sibling and perhaps how you think that shaped the way that you kind of responded um, in, in these moments? Yeah, so my two younger sisters uh, were dependent on my mum at the time. They were living in her home. Um, they were financially dependent on her. They were dependent on her in terms of their accommodation, their living arrangements. And my youngest sister was 18 at the time, and she was a first-hand witness to the homicide. She'd been injured herself. Um, so the immense trauma that came out of that violence um, was was really difficult to start processing or healing from in those early days. And, in fact, I feel, I feel like our lives were suspended, really, until the trial mm. took place two years later. So there was a two-year period in which there was a lot of uncertainty. I moved my sisters into my home. I was expecting a baby. I was five months pregnant, and I was only 26 years old myself mm. and um, had never faced this sort of grief. Um, and then to compound all of that, you're dealing with police, you're trying to understand the legal process, and I'm lucky to have a legal background, um, but a lot of people don't. And navigating the legal system and uh, an impending um, trial and what that means for you and what the possible outcomes can be can be ex extremely disorienting. And then on top of that, um, the weight, the, um, the, the fear that comes with trauma and the sense of um, losing your sense of security and your sense of safety while you're pregnant, all of these different things were... Um, really affecting both my mind and my body at the time. And I just remember trying to focus on, okay, you've got to get through this pregnancy and you've just got to do one thing at a time. And um, I started to think about, you know, what what motherhood means and how that what that would look like in the absence of my own mother, what how I would, you know, down the track even explain um uh, how I would explain this loss to my own children in the future, whether I could really stop the cycle and be the person that heals my family. All of these things were an immense burden and um, were a source of pressure for me during that time. Um, so it was really important that I um, accepted counselling initially from the Homicide Victims Support Group. That, I think, was really the starting point for my journey of recovery. I immediately accepted that help um, because I felt that I needed someone to support me. Mm. And um, I was journaling and documenting what was happening. And as time went by, 
and definitely after the trial itself was finished, I started to feel a little bit more competent, both as a mother, um, as, as an individual, as an adult, um, and in terms of my ability to speak about my experiences. And I didn't feel safe speaking out until the trial itself was done because um, I, I didn't want to prejudice my own evidence. I was really... Um, feeling uh, worried about my own safety and things like that. So it was a long time to wait before being able to share. Mm-hmm. And once I, once I felt confident enough to do so, art really gave me a tool with which to do that. And I had begun, begun painting at home and um, exploring my own creati- creativity as a vehicle for healing from trauma and um, doing a bit of writing. And that all really gave way to a, a lot more... Um, more ways of expressing what happened and talking about it. If you have just joined us, we are speaking with Amani Haider, who has written a memoir called The Mother Wound. Um, Amani, you know, in many ways, it feels like the abuse didn't really stop once, you know, your mother was killed. It, you know, you obviously went on, as you said, to, to be involved in your dad's criminal trial. You, you had really uh, awful responses from your dad's family that kind of tried to weaponize your faith in many ways to kind of manipulate you into forgiving him. I, I suppose I'm interested in, you know, when you're dealing with not only the homicide itself, but kind of all of those things that kind of came after it, did that change the way that you, you thought about abuse and I suppose the mechanics of it even after your mother had passed away? Definitely. Um, we know that the initial response that someone receives when they disclose their trauma or share their trauma can really shape their recovery process. And the fact that my father's family were supporting him and the fact that they were heavily leaning into uh, victim-blaming narratives um, was really offensive. It was deeply offensive and um, I think really stalled my own ability to begin processing that trauma and healing from it because it meant that I had to become... Um, I had to set some really firm boundaries about um, who I was communicating with. I lost trust in a lot of members of my extended family and my sense of community was really ruptured. Mm. Um, So on top of the the trauma of the crime itself, there were all these flow-on effects that took away um, what might have been a wonderful support network otherwise. Um, So that was really disappointing and... I think things like seeing sensationalised media headlines, seeing casual misogyny online, seeing the comments on Facebook articles, um, all adds to that. When when victims of crime repeatedly uh, witness their trauma being undermined in that way and um, all of these insensitive conversations taking place around their story, it makes it really hard for them to feel that they can trust anyone with their narrative, and it's it's incredibly silencing. So it did take a while to grow out of that, and for me, faith was an important coping mechanism, and I didn't want that to be corrupted by the behaviour of my dad's family who were trying to uh, guilt and shame me into being um, the good daughter or being a model victim. And um, I really began to see the way in which society pressures people to not display their anger, not to display their rage, and women in particular, and how how we're often silenced by that stigma and how we're silenced by the fact that we need to be graceful and forgiving and um, accommodating and understanding. And 
I, as a young person, had always conceptualized those things as sort of obligatory. And then I began to sort of see how harmful they can be when weaponized by abusers. And I also began to see how abusers can abuse by proxy. Mm -hmm. So if, if they're no longer able to access you, they might manipulate family members against you. They might triangulate people. Um, they might use... Uh, your friends or other significant people in your life to try and get to you and, um, you know, convey their harmful messages to mm. you or control your behaviour in that manner. And I think that's a really important um, aspect to think about because for a lot of women um, who are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, for example, um, abuse might not take place just through one individual person. It might be a matter of um, a particular family. Mm collaborating um, in order to control the victim. Um, so it's not always a black and white um, or easily defined form of abuse. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that you describe your family and, you, you know, your father's family, it is, it's all entwined and, and you kind of everybody had an opinion and everybody took a side and I can only imagine how... Oh, devastating it would be to, to receive the responses that you, you got from some of his family. Amani, something that really stayed with me from your book is the way that you spoke about remorse, um, particularly when you, you know, you gave your victim impact statement and you speak about wanting to see some level of remorse from your father. And, it, you know, in many ways, it felt like he never really gave you that. Um, and perhaps instead he gave you disgust or even nonchalance, you know, as, way, as a way that it felt like he was kind of warping your reality like he had been um, in, in many ways. I, I'm interested, I suppose, what did you learn about remorse and, and, and what have you learned about healing through the way that you think about remorse? Yeah, so as a person who was trained as a lawyer and who looked to the legal system as a way of seeking closure and seeking justice and truth, I was really let down and disappointed at multiple stages um, by the fact that what my expectations were weren't really being reflected in reality. And the trial process itself was, was so re-traumatising that I felt that the two years in between the murder and, and the trial hadn't even happened. Um, I felt like I was back at square one in terms of my recovery. I felt really disoriented by this disconnect between um, how I thought a remorseful person should behave and then the behaviour that I actually witnessed in the courtroom from my dad, who did seem pretty indifferent, to be honest. And um, I... I I've tried, you know, as, as much as I can to illustrate that for the reader in my book by um, talking about the observations that I made in the courtroom and how heightened um, the emotions are in that space and even the ways in which the design of a courtroom itself or the structure and the cross-examination and the process and things like that um, can affect people who've been traumatised. So it, it was really disappointing not to see that remorse and I think perhaps also literature and popular culture um, often depict it as this natural consequence of mm. violence that, of course, someone will be remorseful if they do something like that. And in reality, that's not necessarily the case. And I remember my counsellor telling me that perhaps I should think about or adjust my expectations a little bit beforehand because even though I had come to accept that my dad had murdered my mum and I had come to accept that um, he was capable of that level of violence, I still had this mental barrier where I was like, how could you do something like that to someone? 
and not feel bad about it and not want to seek forgiveness or um, uh, to, to self-rehabilitate or to even um, submit yourself to accountability. So for me, that was really shocking to see. And I think that's, that takes us into a really complex territory in terms of, okay, so what do we do um, in order to make sure that people who commit this level of violence are rehabilitated? How do we regain that sense of safety as victims of that type of violence? And those are questions that I can't answer. I still don't know the answer for. Um, but it definitely challenged my assumption about what justice looks like and what remorse looks like and what accountability looks like. And for me, um, that's involved thinking outside of the box, stepping outside of my uh, legal mind and thinking more creatively about how we can create justice and sense of community and solidarity um, among survivors and how we can have those conversations in ways that allow us to feel empowered that are not subjected to the rules and formalities of a courtroom. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, as a, with a background as, you know, as a lawyer, do you feel like obviously these spaces hold such significance for you professionally and now personally going through this, uh, you know, this trial, do you feel like that experience changed your relationship to being a lawyer, to the law and, and, and to justice? It definitely did. So I'm not practicing law at the moment. Um, I did for a little while after my my um, daughter was born, but I struggled to um, get back into a headspace where I could deal with a high level of conflict. So my background was in commercial litigation, and that's a conflict driven um, adversarial process where mm-hmm. there are two opposing views. Um, that became something that was very difficult for me to tolerate within my window of tolerance as someone who had experienced such significant trauma. I also couldn't imagine going back into the courtroom. Um, I haven't been able to go back into one, um, and I I don't think I want to practice in that space anymore. And I feel pretty comfortable with that decision. I like being able to use my legal knowledge um, in more creative ways, in, in ways where I can contribute to um, conversations around policy where I can contribute to, um, you know, the, the board at the Bankstown Women's Health Centre where I volunteer. So it, it all comes in um, really handy. But for me, justice is about so much more than what can happen um, in the courtroom. And there's a line that I refer to in the book that was something that I learned at university, that you shouldn't confuse justice with the law. Mm. And I was a legal practitioner. Um, So justice can actually mean lots of different things and will vary as well from one person to the next. And what justice looks like for me might be completely different for the next um, victim or survivor of violence. So it's it's important to recognise that. And I think what I've been doing through art and through writing has felt a lot more like justice to me than, you know, those that, that um, hour or two that I spent in the courtroom mm-hmm. um, on the day that I was cross-examined. So, and it was all born out of this desire to say more and do more and affect change because when I read out my victim impact statement, I thought, okay, that was good, that was kind of empowering, but there's so much more to say and there's so much more that needs to be said about my mum's experiences and about... Um, this issue more broadly. So I've I've really challenged myself to think outside the box and um, resist this idea that we can um, reduce justice to what's what's achievable through the law or in the courtroom. Mm. 
I love the way that you have absolutely carried on your mum's legacy through, um, you know, getting her degree uh, to, uh, you know, just the ways in which you really champion um, her life's work and, and her story. Something that I love about the way in which the kind of book comes together at the end is the way that you speak about hope, um, hope as a practice, hope as part of your activism, you know, hope as a belief that things can change. I'm interested, do you think putting this book out and getting such a warm reception and and people really wanting to read these stories has impacted your idea of um, what hope can be? Yes, I think this process has given me a sense of closure that I did not previously have. I also really appreciate the ability to connect um, with other victim survivors and the way that that builds um, a sense of hope and solidarity is is so powerful because finding allies in the wake of trauma and mm-hmm. finding people who are working towards a common vision is such a powerful part of any type of advocacy or activism. And it can be difficult to sustain that sense of hope, especially when we're living in a state of uncertainty. We've just um, we've all just survived this pandemic and um, we've seen how precarious things can be for people who are already experiencing marginalisation or vulnerability. So it's it's a difficult thing to sustain and at the end of the book I was feeling depleted. I was feeling mm-hmm. that I needed to um, write an ending to something that was really an ongoing issue and mm-hmm. it is. Um, so it was important for me to draw on hope and to illustrate that um, as an ongoing um, practice because it's something that I'll still have to tap into and there are good days and there are bad days and um, there are days where you're burnt out and there are days where you're really excited and motivated and you can really believe that change is going to happen. And um, since the book ha- you know, came out, there has been change. I got a call in September from my local member, Jason Clare, and the law that I had been um, really pushing for had um, been passed and mm. that meant that more women would be protected in relation to their paid parental leave entitlements um, if they've experienced DV uh, during their pregnancy. So that was a win that, um, you know, I wasn't sure whether we were going to get there in the book, but it happened. So I think hope is really important. I do believe in it in the practical sense, not in this mythical abstract mm. um, idea. So I think we create that for each other. I think our storytelling can do that. And I think um, building a sense of community and allyship with people who have a similar vision for the future um, is really essential. Mm. Congratulations. I'm so glad to hear that that law's passed and, you know, your tireless effort to change these things is just really remarkable. And it's been such a joy to um, talk to you today and to, to read your story. Amani Hader, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight talking to you. Amani Hader, their uh, author, writer, lawyer. Uh, her book, The Mother Wound, is out now through Pan Macmillan. You can get it in any good bookstore. You are listening to Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're in Triple R. The Glass House is the name of the show. This next story comes from All the Best, a show where emerging Australian storytellers 
Learn how to make audio stories. It's a weekly podcast and community radio show produced in collaboration from FBI in Sydney, Sin and Triple R here in Melbourne. Uh, this next one comes from one of their latest episodes called Behind, Cur- Behind the Curtain. Have you ever seen a performance that blew your mind, that left you wondering how that person became so skilled? It's strange to walk on the streets of Melbourne without spotting a busker. In the past, the streets were full of musicians and artists performing. But as the city comes to its another lockdown, all is gone. Where are the buskers? How have they been during the lockdowns? With these questions, I gave a call to Johnson Xu. Johnson is my favorite busker. You might not be familiar with his name, but you definitely have seen his performance in Melbourne. Hi everyone on the podcast. My name is Johnson. I come from Taiwan. I'm 35 years old by now. I'm known as a balloon man in Melbourne. The biggest things I like to do is get it inside to the balloon and entertain all the audience who see my show. It was about two years ago when I first saw Johnson's performance on the street. At that time, Johnson worked as a magician when he was not performing. Before he came to Melbourne in 2015, Johnson was also a busker in Taiwan. He started his career at 20, but he was quite frustrated at the time. In Asian culture, I would say they are not really really respect to the performance unless you are really famous. So if you want to try living with uh, by performing, it will be really, really hard work. And um, so besides performing, I used to be a math teacher, percussion teacher, but basically I still love performing. When Johnson was 29, he applied for a working holiday visa to Australia. It was his last chance to do so, because the visa had an age limitation. He then started to make a living by busking. But soon, Johnson experienced the worst time of his life in Australia. Seems like um, it's really hard to catch people's eyes if you uh, were like a magician. And only if um, people will stop for you, only when they feel something is they, are, they will be curious and they will try to find out what's going to happen. But um, since like people know you are a magician and then they will expect that, okay, you are going to do something special, something magical, but it's under their expecting. So um, it doesn't really working very well for me as a magician on, uh, to, when doing busking. So I didn't earn much money, actually. <laughs> and um, at the end of the 2018, I met my teacher, uh, the first balloon man in, in Melbourne, also come from Taiwan. <laughs> and, well, he know me as a magician, and, and, and then we become friends. And then before he go back to Taiwan, I, I asked him to teach me. The, all the balloon man things and well he's very kind and then he told me all the tips and then uh, I tried to practice 
over and over again for like one month every day. And then I started to do the balloon man on the street. Unfortunately, he failed his first performance, as he was not familiar with the music. But soon he got more skillful, and the more skillful he got, the more he earned. During the peak tourism time, he could earn ninety bucks per hour. In the very beginning, you will see someone wearing a wetsuit on the street. And then probably you might think, is this guy going to swim on the street? And then the next next step, you will see a very very huge balloon. The balloon is even bigger than a human being. And then you will see a man putting himself step by step into the totally inside the balloon, and and then by changing all the shape, shaking, and then you will enjoy it with the performers, and then you will laugh at the end. The music、uh, I use the most is Crazy Frog. The most well-known melody is a dun 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 dun. And then it was March 2020, the first lockdown in Melbourne. That's just after the Mumbai Festival. After the Mumbai Festival,、um, then they started the lockdown. Of course, I feel a little bit like、um, panic because I just lost the source of income. I have no choice but to find some other job to keep my life. I can understand that、um, it's really hard for everyone, but、uh, I don't know. There's just nothing I can do, and then just we can only just wait for what city council told us. And then only would keep waiting, waiting, and waiting. During lockdowns, Johnson found a job in a dental clinic. When there are breaks between lockdowns, he tries to be back to the streets, but the streets are already different. It's already big difference. The tourists, the t- numbers of the tourists just、uh, plunk. No, not much, not much. Uh, tourists in inside the city, and well, the income is actually not really not good at, as well. So,、um, well,、um, people still like my show, but、um, it's really hard to motivate myself to keep doing the show. I asked Johnson whether he's able to secure any financial support from the Victorian government or the city council. He said he could receive COVID disaster support for his job at the dental clinic, but as a performer, he couldn't secure any financial payment. I can't get the COVID、uh, COVID nineteen disaster payment by now because my working hours also been affected by the lockdown. But、um, as a performer, well, because、um, as a busker, our income is all cash. All right. So it's hard for the government to support you as well. It's like,、um, how do I know your average income? And Johnson felt he became unnecessary. The career as a performer,、uh, the first one, can be ignored because we are we are actually not the necessary things for people's life. Do you know what I mean? Do you think 
you are necessary for people. Well, when it comes to life and death, yeah. I contacted the city of Melbourne about whether they provide financial support for buskers, but I didn't receive their response by that line. I also couldn't find out any details about the support payments on their website. Looking back to his busking career, Johnson had gains and pains. He was once attacked by an audience during a performance. He hurt his leg and was unable to work for days. But he also learned a lot, especially from other buskers. They not only taught him how to improve his performance, but also his own value as a busker. So as a performer, when I was in Taiwan, I I I actually not dare to ask the money for my clients or any other else because I also treat myself as a low value. When I get to Australia, when I know other buskers, and they actually taught me a lot. They said you provide the entertainment, and so you're worth for that. I asked Johnson whether he regretted becoming a performer. He said he did. But not now. He wanted to go back to the streets as soon as possible. He enjoyed entertaining people, and people needed entertainment right now. I also wish Johnson could come back to the streets and perform soon. I hope it will be a sunny day when we can walk freely with our friends on the streets, and then you can hear the familiar music, and you can see the balloon man. That was the Balloon Man by Wing Quang, with supervising production from Ollie Kruzak. If you do want to get involved with all the best, learn how to make your very own audio story. They are currently accepting summer pitches. You can head to allthebestradio.com to find out more. That's right. You are listening to Triple R. Glasshouse is the name of this show. That's it for me today. My name is Beth Aq. Thanks so much for your company. Last hour. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 